0: Hi everyone, this is Sarhat from The Curious Learners. My guest today is Will Robinson. Will is the head of community at Alliance DAO. He works with amazing founders who build projects in Web3. Hi Will, welcome to The Curious Learners. Hey, thanks for having me. So Will, I don't know anyone else with a PhD in game design. How did you even get into it?
1: So I was doing research in film studies at McGill and I thought, that I was outcompeted competed by my peers, who were watching way more cinema than I was, and I needed to get an edge on them. And so I convinced my professors to let me study video games as though they were films, because I was playing a lot more video games than my peers. And they said that would be okay as long as I could explain why games were different or more interesting than cinema. At the time it was Pretty dicey to suggest that games were worth studying at a premier institution. Games have been historically, you know, persona non grata. But there I went. I ended up looking at mechanism design in games, so the ways in which games tell stories through their rules. And that idea gripped me for the next eight years. I was lucky enough to stumble upon a local university, Concordia, which had just done a strategic investment $3 $3 million to stimulate the research of games and hired all the best professors in games. There weren't many at the time. And so I got to build a curriculum that very few people get to build on the history, the politics, and the design of games.
0: As you progress through your studies, what part of gaming attracted you the most? Is that the structure of games, the design, the history? What was the most interesting bit?
1: Sure. So a lot of my work at first was on virtuosity in play. What does it mean to play a game like you'd play a piece of music? When does a game player become an artist? And not building a sculpture in Minecraft. That's not what I mean. What I mean is like truly looking at the text and thinking, how do I interpret this game in a meaningful way and play it to perfection while still being creative and expressing myself? And so I studied Dota 2 players the very best Dota 2 players in the world and treated them as though they were virtuosic. That lasted a little while, and then I moved into user-generated content, looking at how players labor on behalf of game developers and game studios. At the time, Little Big Planet was really popular and was starting to show how you could only make 1% of your game's content and allow your players to build 99% of the rest. And that was pretty interesting. But where I always kept going, where my heart was always set was on something called procedural rhetoric. In economics, it's called reverse mechanism design. But the idea is you have some philosophy, some argument to make about the world, and then you model the world in some kind of simulation, and you tell people to reach an objective given the obstacles in that simulation. And using this kind of technique, you can explain the systematic issues or problems that exist in the world. So an early example was called Cutthroat Capitalism. And it was about the Somali pirates and how they were incentivized towards piracy in certain seasons and not others. And it was a wired flash game like on on wired.com. You can't play it anymore. It's like dead medium. But the idea stuck and I started designing games about labor movements. I started designing games about net neutrality, about how laws are built, how, why kids kill themselves in high school. I just kept simulating different systems and games and had people play them out, looking to make arguments and learn about that kind of game design. And because I was going into mechanism design, that's what initially like got me into crypto, which is deeply interested in how incentives can shape the world. So yeah, that was my focus.
0: That was exactly going to be my question here. What's the story of your entrance into crypto? Was it driven through your experience in gaming or was it another outside factor? Looks like it's the former, but what was the story? What cohort year are you from, by the way, when it comes to entrance into blockchain?
1: So I joined crypto in 2017, sort of fully in the summer. My cousin Dan had quit his job as a lawyer and went to a boot camp to learn how to program and focused his energies at this company called Chain, which later got acquired by Stellar. And Dan was telling me in a speakeasy bar in the middle of the night in New York City how Bitcoin works. And he was just showing me how hashes work and asymmetric cryptography works. And I was really not an engineer right? I had never done any coding in my life. I was a humanist philosopher. I was coming from film studies, remember. And so I was trying to grok it. He gave me a recommendation, which was to quit my PhD and jump full-time into crypto because what I was studying would be one day useful to the crypto people. He was sure of it. I had no idea how. And I didn't take his advice. I slow played it. And he gave me Mastering Bitcoin as a recommendation, a book to read. And I'm so thankful because at the time, there was basically only lies and mastering Bitcoin. That was like the only two pieces of information available on the internet. Yeah, and so I built up my chops that way.
2: And I think it was around a similar time, one of my other guests on the show turned into crypto and he was telling me, the way he got into it was that he was watching random videos on YouTube as to how things work, right? And I think there is one video which is titled How Bitcoin Works from 2017. You might have seen it, I presume, but if not, I think that's that's a very foundational one as well. But how did you then make the move into Alliance now? What's the story there?
1: So... The first job I got in crypto was in early 2018. I was going to all the meetups looking for a job, and at one meetup, this startup inside of a very old school accounting firm, so like a child company, announced that they were looking for someone to head up marketing. And I had never done any marketing in my life, but I applied for the job and said, look, I can do a lot of great writing, PhD in this, I understand the content really well, I read Mastering Bitcoin cover to cover, and so you should give me a shot. Oh, and also my cousin, Dan, who I mentioned earlier, is pretty famous at this point. He's currently the head of Research at Paradigm. And so because of that familial connection, they had already been on a podcast together, the interviewer and Dan. I said, okay, let's give this guy a chance. And I just started writing and and doing business development around Bitcoin audit, like forensic crypto audit, financial audit, people who had Bitcoin on their balance sheet and needed to get regulated because they were going public, or they were a Cayman Island company, or they were a foundation in Switzerland. So these are like the kinds of people I would service and eventually grew my career there. But there's a sort of limit to how quickly you can grow in an accounting firm, even in a startup in an accounting firm, and started looking for other work. And I found clients seemed like the perfect fit because they were looking for someone to run their accelerator program, someone who could build. An educational program, which is something I had been doing when I was a professor in university, lecturing during my PhD as someone who understood crypto, someone who was, you know, charismatic and outgoing. So I applied and I heard after the fact that they threw my application in the trash but in my cover letter, I once again mentioned Dan, my cousin. And Imran, the founder of Alliance, fished it out on that line alone and gave me an interview. And the rest was history.
2: Oh, wow. So Dan was quite instrumental, looks like. in, the, in Deeply the instrumental
1: series. in my entire career. I hope... I finally returned the favor to him and provide him excellent deal flow out of the accelerator.
2: Absolutely. Uh, But also the other story could have been with the audit function, right? If you had started a crypto audit business maybe back then, you know, things would have been massively different perhaps now.
1: Well, it was a great business. It's just we were building it in the bear market and it was hard. And the people who were running the startup were all ousted because they were all Bitcoin maximalists and very hardcore Bitcoin maximalists to the degree that they didn't want to service other kinds of crypto, to the degree that they bought into carnivory, you know, like you don't eat vegetables, like you only eat meat. Absolutely. Um and, and a couple other like distasteful ideological perspectives that just didn't fit with the old school parent company. So I was left as the most senior person there in that audit firm over time and just helped develop the audit methodologies, learn to program, learn to provide everything that was needed from a research perspective instead of doing marketing. I stopped doing any of that BD stuff.
2: And at the time, obviously, that was a big, big move for you into crypto, a totally new career. And you've been spending what all your time now in crypto since then, right? So, but what's been the most surprising element for you?
1: Mm, narrow it down. Surprising in what
2: way? In the beginning, you knew nothing about it, right? When you were mm. sitting with Dan at that bar, and you know he was trying to pitch you the idea and everything behind it. Over time, you learned more. So, did it meet your expectations? Or was it even a moment where you said, "Wow, this this world is fascinating because of this and that"? I I never expected this this topic or whatever.
1: The problem is that happens like literally every week. It's just like a, the reason I'm still here it's a nonstop learning roller coaster ride. Exactly. So, it starts with hash functions. Like just learning how a hash function works at the deepest levels is a beautiful thing. And then elliptic curve cryptography, incredible. Then Schnorr signatures, unbelievable. Then you look at how Plasma works, and it doesn't. And then you look at how roll-ups work, and they do. And then you're like, bridges, we're never going to solve bridges. And then all of a sudden, it's 2021, and everybody's using bridges. Everybody's like, when did we solve bridges? And then you find out we didn't solve bridges. They're breaking left and right. Oh, God. And then the ZK stuff. Oh, God. It's just like a brutal, like, smashing your head into a wall, trying to figure out how these proofs work when you don't have a math degree. And you're just, like, learning from scratch there. I don't know. It's all been... So surprising, maybe the biggest aha moment is learning to read between the lines in crypto. So there are so many amazing things being built, but so many fears around regulation that no one can really say what they're truly excited about or wanna get done. And when you see things like that make no sense, Uniswap not turning on fees, or Uniswap Labs acquiring Genie and not accruing value to the token, curve doing this or you know ave doing that and everyone's like what's going on and then finally when you grow up and you're behind the scenes like oh it's regulatory (laughs) there are lawyers who are making people do irrational things and everyone outside is confused that was like the big shock for
2: me that's quite an interesting one my wife is a lawyer well mine too yeah really awesome in fact she's uh being pulled into some crypto related stuff in her firm as well but yes legal actually regulatory let's drives drives a lot of things more broadly but the point you made also earlier about you know there's this new thing every week which is fascinating which is great but i get nervous about it because i go to bed reading about some new things white paper etc and when i wake up in the morning there's this other thing which i have no idea about right <laughs> so, okay what's this now right i have to learn about this too it's just you know constant trying to catch up with developments with Builders in the space, you lose eighty percent of
1: the year. Like eighty percent of what you learned is useless and outdated by the end of the year, right? So you're just like slowly accumulating a knowledge right. base. But today, I can assure you that after four and a half years of like dedicatedly learning how crypto works. I'm in the rare percentiles of people who know how crypto
2: works. <laughs> Maybe you should think about a book title, How Crypto Works. <laughs> we will go back into gaming a little bit, right? You're one of the experts in the space who can combine deep expertise in gaming, design, PhD, and your crypto experience. But if you take a step back, before blockchain, there have been a number of big, transformations in the history of gaming, perhaps the most recent two, we can summarize as cloud and and mobile, but in terms of the current transformation enabled by blockchain, what is it that is so big, so critical that blockchain brings into gaming?
1: Great question. We don't know. It's sort of like a power. It's the same thing I felt in 2017, 2018, 2019. There's like something ineffable, something magical that crypto provides that nothing else can do it's a solution looking for a problem. And with games, it's really hard for that solution to matter. I I recently wrote a blog post about this regarding throughput. Like for a game to go on the blockchain, you have to totally reimagine the design. You have to go in directions that are not like Dota or Fortnite or Civilization. You need really niche sort of dead end game experiments that didn't work in other media and see if they can actually make it in crypto. So what but what most excites me where I think that power lies is in composability. So I can design a game loop. And that game loops logic can be used by someone else. In DeFi, this is obvious, right? You have a stable coin like Dai, that contract gets called by Uniswap. Uniswap's contract gets called by a staking contract that allows Uniswap LPs to like recover value for staking. Like you can layer this DeFi Lego and build. In games, we can imagine something similar. Players are continuously layering rules on top of what they do. Here's like a normal example, a no death run of a video game. I will complete the game without dying or very quickly or without leveling up. I'm adding more rules onto the play, right? I'm layering. And that's something that we can see players start to be able to do in crypto, but then do it so much better. Say, so like, I'm gonna take this entire piece of game logic that's on chain and reuse it in this other section over here. Now, that's part of it. Other people are excited about interoperability with NFTs. I'm less excited. I think it's kind of fine. People are also really excited about NFTs being permanent and forever. I'm like, okay, maybe. But what I want is to like see someone put a game design out there and then charge bips for that game design loop being called by another game design loop, which charges bips for another game calling its game design loops, a kind of royalty system. For a game machine being built i think that would be amazing
2: but we don't know i'll take this away and i'll do more research myself on this topic that you just mentioned because when i have discussions with people from the blockchain gaming space either founders or investors so one thing they consistently say is you know verifiable ownership again sort of referring to nfts and all that but you know looks like what you just said is you know sounds even more interesting than that so
1: yeah like I want to own the protocol, not the objects in it. And I and I want the protocol to, to mix and match with stuff to make that composability work. A lot of game designers in crypto are not putting their games on chain. They're putting their assets on chain. And there's a big distinction there, right? The logic is run off-chain. Axie, Steppen, you know, any major title has realized you can't afford to keep logic on chain and satisfy lots of players. So you you just don't. I play Dark Forest. It's a fully on chain game, all the logic is on chain. That means that the client is agnostic, anybody can design their own interface to the game because you just need to get to the contract calls. The whole state is there. If your client makes you do illegal moves, you won't be able to adjust the state. So that's fine. And what we've been able to do is turn Dark Forest, which is a massively multiplayer game, into single-player challenges, into lobbies, into 2v2 matches. We just keep remixing the rules, keeping them all on-chain, and rapidly iterating new designs. And the credit for who built what always remains. And what's cool is each of these underlying game primitives can keep track of who's used them and when and how, and you can build credibility and reputation with these on-chain games because it's proven that you like beat this game or won this challenge at this time it's your private key that did that these are the things we're looking at
0: looks
2: like you collectively narrowed this down to the earn concept right so play to earn play and earn etc and we've been trying all these different incentive mechanisms since i don't know a couple of years or so but what i understand from With your response just now is that there is much deeper set of things that we could actually try to do with blockchain in the space of gaming. If you go back to those incentive mechanisms, we've been trying all those different things, right? So some of them have been tried and tested already sort of nuts favored as much by by the gaming community. But what's your take on on those? So rather than maybe, uh, you know, before I ask you to compare maybe different things, do you first believe that we should have those incentive mechanisms in the first place? Because you come from gaming design, right? So you're one of those people who cares more about how beautiful the game is, the gameplay, how people enjoy it and all that before even thinking about how to monetize, how to incentivize gamers, etc.
1: Yeah. So one of the things game developers were really good at was this thing called gamification. It's when you turn something that's not a game into a game or when you benefit from game-like elements on top of something. like. And for every dish you wash, you'll get a gold star, right? Or, and so washing the dishes is not a game for you, but collecting gold stars can be, right? And because game designers were really good at designing games, they were really good at gamifying their own games. So when their games were boring or when players didn't like them, there'd be this meta layer game on top to incentivize them to keep going. And most people confuse the two. They think that the two belong together. But in, in my view, what the incentive mechanisms did in 2021 and 2022 now still, is they gamified the games being built. They added this incentive layer on top of the actual gameplay. And that incentive layer was really hard to reason about for players because it had a reflexive design. When it goes up, it goes up more. When it goes down, it goes down more. Very confusing kind of mechanism. Uh, And I think that if we're going to keep using these mechanisms, we need to do a lot of education around how they work to protect people. This is the problem with DeFi in general, right? Which is that it lets 12-year-olds at two o'clock in the morning, high, leverage-long cat photographs. And we weren't bred as human beings to do that kind of behavior, and we'll make a lot of mistakes. I, I often compare it to the sexual revolution. So for a long time, right, sex is peer-to-peer, but then the church shows up. And for eons, you need to have a broker to have sex with people. The broker says, okay, you are now married. I've made sure that you're of the right age. i made sure that you're opposite sex. I have all these different viewpoints on what sex can be, and now go reproduce. And then at some point in the 60s, we have this sexual revolution, and we rediscover peer-to-peer fucking, and all of a sudden, a lot of problems show up right? Because without education, because we didn't need education, we were brokered. We started having sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, sexual assault, sadness. It's just hard to negotiate these kinds of things. But then over time, we built techniques. We had sex ed. Hopefully we had sex ed. And we get to a point where we can safely or more safely do the peer-to-peer fucking, you know, 50, 60 years later. DeFi is kind of like that. We had this broker who was making sure we weren't leveraging long cat photographs at two in the morning while high, and we had all these protective infrastructures, and then DeFi blows that all up, and now we're in trouble. And while the, you know, reaction from the state is ban it, right? Like, push chastity. Don't use the DeFi. It's not going to work, right? People are still going to get hurt. Same for games that are laying this DeFi. People are going to get hurt. We need a lot of education, like years of it, decades of it, before we're going to, like, get protected by our own selves in the face of this new danger.
2: And where do you think we are in terms of learning how to protect us? Step zero. (laughs) Step zero. Only the
1: really smartest of the smart people, right, can tell. And only for a certain amount of time until their peers just like keep yelling at them that no, it's not a, it's not a, It's not a pyramid scheme. It's real. It's working. It's magic. You should just keep going, and then eventually, like, fuck it. It must be. If every it's been working for months, it's got to be real. And then you lose a bunch of cash.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's how we learn, right? So I think the more quickly we fail, the better we learn. But hopefully, that failure, I believe, is something more sustainable going forward. So you might not want to answer this question. But which of the two would you pick if you had to pure gameplay or all these incentives?
1: So. Something we've found is that the greatest companies and games in the world have built a mass of platforms, right, from Blizzard to Steam to Nintendo. But all of those platforms depended on a perfect game, an IP that was so outstanding that you couldn't stop people from buying it. And so all of these incentives are Band-Aid solutions to finding that true IP and building a new revolutionary game. And from that game, monetizing every which way you can. So I'm all for the game.
2: And I guess we should also talk about Dark Forest, the game and Dark Forest now. It seems to be an interesting story as well, how you got into it by some coincidence. I don't know if your cousin Dan is involved in that story as he well. Is. But, um, he is. <laughs> he goddamn is.
1: <laughs> so. Um, about it. I wanted to play this game. It was a fully on-chain, cryptographically secured game played in zero knowledge. Think like a giant space chessboard where every move is provably correct, but you have no idea what it was, even though it's on the public blockchain, until you hash out the universe, which takes way more energy than your laptop can actually process. You only get to know a little bit of the universe. And Dark Forest is like the only on-chain game at the time that's doing anything interesting. This is like 2021 in the winter and i'm just like okay like early like the in december in january i want this and my cousin Dan introduces me to Omar Bosali, who happens to have an allow listed key. And Omar gives me his key to play Dark Forest, because it can't have that many players without breaking the Gnosis chain where it runs on. So I start experimenting. I think the game design is pretty interesting. It's not the greatest game I've ever played, but it's the greatest game i ever played in crypto. And there are these interesting artifacts and NFTs, and I'm thinking, okay, well, if this is the nft boom and everybody's making money left and right speculating on nfts these are the nfts i want to play for this is the game i want to get involved with because there's something truly fundamentally interesting here i was wrong it turns out it's too interesting and nobody cares because it's like you need to be a gigabrain to even appreciate what's going on but maybe not forever and yeah start playing and i'm bad It's a really hard game to play. You need to know how to exploit smart contracts, build and rebuild clients, automate scripts, and play close to 24-7 for weeks on end. So everybody's bad, (laughs) in short. And so I decided, well, okay, let's team up. No one's... Everybody's playing alone at the time. And I thought, let me build... Uh, a DAO that will play Dark Forest as a group. And I already have Omar, who's this former Coinbase engineer who's building out this infrastructure on AWS to rapidly mine out the whole universe for me. I recruit some younger pilots who can play the game 24 seven because they don't have families like we do. I recruit more Coinbase engineers because apparently they've got a lot of time on their hands at Coinbase. And then we just start building plugins and we start competing. And eventually Dark Forest DAO becomes almost synonymous with Dark Forest. We've grown our community to be huge. Meanwhile, the Dark Forest team that built the game has gone on doing other things or taking breaks. And so we've become partial custodians. We launch our own rounds. We've invented the new single player version. We've produced governance votes on it. And so this like fully on-chain game has seen remarkable growth. One of the coolest things we built was called the Astral Colossus. It was the first smart contract player of an on-chain game. So basically, It didn't know how to play the game, it didn't have money to play the game, but players could give it planets, and it would cash those planets out and return them. And it became a permissionlessly collective way of pooling resources together for the worst players in Dark Forest. And so they would do their best, donate planets to the Colossus, the Colossus would cash them out, and then it would climb the ranks and it reached like 33rd, which is pretty good in Dark Forest. And then pro rata rewards everybody who gave it planets with its prize like fractionalized and so permissionless guild formation through smart contracts is what we did there that's an example of composability in on-chain game design
2: absolutely and it looks like it, it's a guild which has formed very much organically and, and developed you know substantially by the very members of it interesting story but where does it stand now so you are pretty much involved in that these days as well, so or?
1: so i founded it but I don't run the day to day operations. I'm light touch, mm. high impact, I like to say. There's Zero X Hank and Chaos God and Valorum who are doing more with it. It's still very experimental. Right now, they're getting their ramen paid for by the Gnosis chain because they're stress testing Optimism's deployment on Gnosis with Dark Forest. So instead of stress testing with DeFi and people losing money, if you stress test with games, you can basically get all you need in terms of knowledge and benchmarks at that way.
2: Awesome. And really if you switch gears to crypto more broadly, and we discussed this a little bit when I asked you about you know the biggest surprise. And um, but what do you to what extent do you think the crypto space is on track to execute the grant vision introduced by Satoshi? Yeah, I think one thing to be honest, my personal belief very quickly is that you know, they might not have even envisaged such a massive crowd of builders, developers flowing into the space and coming up with all these innovations every other week, as you were saying earlier. So I guess from that perspective, we might even be beyond the imagination at the time. But from the perspective that was laid out back then, how do you think about it? Like what's the progress made right now with Alliance? That, uh, you see a lot of these new projects.
1: Yeah, so back then... And still today the problem was transaction throughput if we wanted to execute the vision of a global financial market we were going to need more than seven transactions per second to share the lightning network was not as good as we were hoping it's not adopted as quickly as we were hoping state channels weren't the solution it seemed um today using ethereum as the alternative we are starting to see scaling come faster And as Vitalik mentioned recently, Ethereum could grow its transaction throughput 10,000x over the next few years to 100,000 transactions per second. I will remind everyone that Visa does 50,000 transactions per second. And if we have to put all our computation on that, that's pretty garbage. And so I think that I'm always mm, cautiously optimistic. I'm, I'm very much a, a pessimist when it comes to crypto. I'm here for the tech. I'm here for the learning. If it works, that's amazing. <laughs> but I, we have so many blockers, so many unknowns, so many computer science issues, and we have so many problems to scale. Like once we solve those issues and we give them in the hands of users, are they just going to, you know, break the chain like with CryptoKitties? Like CryptoKitties found product market fit and then just crashed the chain and it was over, right? Like <laughs> we're in trouble.
2: Absolutely. I think product market it was there, but products underlying infrastructure fit was not great. So, and the other thing, right? So infrastructure is not sufficient throughput and all that, but also we clearly need to expand the use cases of blockchain. And because the usual pushback when you try to explain Bitcoin or blockchain to people are use case, and we need to do that in our daily lives, at work, during our leisure time, etc. Otherwise, the activities remain very much episodic, you know, within clusters and distant from one another. So I think it goes very much to your point about composability and also interoperability. Um, uh, from what you have seen so far from your personal research and projects you might have you know you see you invest in uh, at alliance and if you sort of use that to look into the future what's the killer use case for blockchain going to be oh man i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's
1: it's so hard to imagine because we have so many limitations web 2 can do so much I'm always pretty excited by Satoshi's killer use case which is revolutionary money like right. if the government gets so bad that they freeze your accounts and super surveil you and you have no way to to refute that government because they control the financial infrastructure well bitcoin's good for terrorism man it's good for well you know the opposite side of terrorism which is revolution it's this sort of Protection against the worst case scenario, which is a forever despot. And I'm not like this libertarian, anarcho-capitalist person, right? That just fundamentally seems like a a critical threat to humanity and having a robust, workable, though for a small set of people, financial ecosystem, that can be pretty
2: powerful. I think it's a good segue to maybe talk about Alliance a little bit as well. So Alliance was what DeFi Alliance first right? Well, Chicago then...
1: DeFi Alliance. At the Chicago. Beginning, oh,
2: beginning. Wow. Okay. Uh, Chicago DeFi Alliance. And then it dropped. I don't know which one first. Chicago, Chicago first. But then I know DeFi Alliance. Then DeFi dropped and then they added DAO. So what should we make of it as to how you guys seeing the space?
1: So I think we were just obviously not ambitious enough when we started and did not see how fast we would grow and progress. I showed up when it was called DeFi Alliance after cohort three. By then we had accelerated Open token set, DYDX, you know, these g- great names, and was coming into DeFi summer, trying to figure out what to what what to accelerate, what to build. And I, I, I came in as the accelerator head and we programmed for amazing cohorts. We found that DeFi had sort of run out of some steam. Like the amount of amazing primitives left to be discovered was diminishing. The low-hanging fruit had been picked. And so we saw games as a potential use case for crypto. We had already invested in Axie, for instance, and knew that there was some traction to be gained there. And so we created an accelerator program just for games. One cohort, cohort six was just for games. And then we realized that by keeping DeFi in our name, we were alienating all sorts of Web3 use cases like DAO tooling, which we were still very excited about, and infrastructure plays, layer one stuff. So we got rid of DeFi, kept Alliance and, you know, for SEO reasons, we call ourselves Alliance DAO, but like, you know, people don't like to call themselves company LL, like DAO, I think will go away over time. It's just a a way to be discoverable.
2: (laughs) Is it any different in web two versus web three as to the critical elements of building and running an accelerator?
1: Yeah, I think that what we've seen is that the greatest accelerator in the world, Y Combinator completely failed to accelerate crypto companies it produced just like enormously misguided founders those founders though i mean not all of them but they just haven't drunk the crypto kool-aid they're still trying to build web 2.3 or something and so we found an opportunity to build the best accelerator but for crypto companies in in their absence and we hired people from Y Combinator. Three people in Alliance have experience at Y Combinator. And many of our founders have gone through Y Combinator. And all of them have told us, although they might be nice and not really telling the truth, but I'm pretty sure to tell the truth is that we've been a much better experience than Y Combinator because we get how crypto works. One, all the legal stuff is totally domain specific. And we have two lawyers in Alliance um, as part of our 13 person team. And these legal issues are huge. PR is totally different in crypto, the like memes and the ecosystem are completely unique. We're a business world where we don't always start with here's a problem and let's build to solve it. Sometimes it's, we think that this is a solution that's powerful and will yield new opportunities and we don't know where it's going. And like, why Conrad doesn't invest in that kind of thing? Like, So I think I think there's a difference. We've also tried on top of providing unique web three like support built this to be a web three accelerator in and of itself. So to give you an example, when people graduate from our program, they get leaderboard points and the leaderboard points eventually convert into DAO ownership. And the idea is over time, the DAO becomes owned by all of the community members who've gone through it. Um, This was because As a recurring feedback we got about other accelerators like Y Combinator, where founders come back and continually post great content in the forums and refer new teams or review applications. They do all this labor of love for their accelerator, like their alma mater, like as a gift, and they never get to see the value back of that contribution. And we we wanted to just break that, right? We wanted to build a feedback loop where people would keep getting fairly rewarded for the contributions they made to the network. And that's the beginning in our our sense, like the moral innovation as Balaji Srinivasan calls it to a network state that we're trying to create. We want to coordinate a few thousand super engineers and CEOs as founders to build something special, a networked
2: cryptographically enabled community. And to your point about Y Combinator, their approach looks like, well, not necessarily the ideal, but also if you think about this community of crypto-native builders, founders, to them, I guess, Y Combinator is this big incumbent old legacy institution, even though Y Combinator represents such a progressive element of all the startups world, but when it comes to crypto, they perhaps even remained all there, and you guys filled in that gap very well. But what's your North Star metric for Alliance? So different
1: people have different North Stars in Alliance, but the number one is NPS. So we want founders who graduate from our program to refer other founders. And if we keep growing the referral pipeline, we'll keep getting to more founders applying and getting better founders. And so we do a very extensive exit interview with every founder goes through mm-hmm. our program, and we learn about everything they liked and didn't like and improve it for the next session. And that's how we've been able to figure out our secret sauce and why we outcompete many people who are trying to do the same thing.
2: If you can talk to the structure of the program at Alliance, how does selection work, what's the cohort size, and what do they get as the curriculum at Alliance? Sure.
1: So people apply at Alliance.xyz, slash apply. They sometimes get referrals from founders in our community platform we have an opportunity for previous alums to refer and also our initial investors and our pipeline is right now at around 750 applications per cohort and we let in about 20 plus or minus and these founders get optional money so it's a free accelerator we're trying to build a, a nation state here but we like alignment and we think it makes sense so we usually offer 250000 at Most Favorable Nation. Like, whatever you're going to raise at, we'll, we'll come into the round. Just give us some room. The key value add that our founders say is there is the team at Alliance mentoring them. So we have a page in our community platform where all our calendars are posted. You can learn from the best DAO lawyers. You can learn from the best security lawyers. You can learn from... Me who understands game design and ecosystem partnerships. So I'm connected to all the layer ones and work closely with them to source their teams with them. You can learn about growth. You can learn about product. You can learn about NFT communities. You can learn about finance. We have basically built an all-star team of mentors internally. And that's what that's what they like the most. What they like second most is a sense of community. So Getting into an accelerator program where everyone is building in the same space as you, where almost everyone is a potential customer because it's all composable (laughs) because it's all on chain. We share the same state. That's like a huge value add for them. The third thing they get are these lectures. So for 10 weeks before demo day, we bring in a lecturer every day. So at 11 a.m., someone like Ryan Selkis or Dan Robinson or founders from important protocols will show up and explain some niche domain expertise they have to them. And so it's a way of learning, of getting a sort of deep sense of how crypto works, but also not just learning, extending their network. So we find these S-tier people in crypto who are usually already members of our DAO because we raise from 300 people (laughs) who are in that S-tier element and getting to know them and then being able to ask them to like, you know, further extend their network through these sort of lecturers who get this like one on on many, one on 25 relationship going.
2: It looks like once they admit that they have all the resources to tap into as to how to build, where to build, who to sell it to once they build the product. Yeah.
1: And then more recently, we've, we've been covered by TechCrunch on our demo day and getting Your presentation pushed into TechCrunch is a very important legitimizing factor. When you Google these teams, often you find the TechCrunch article first now, and that helps with hiring. More than finding new users, it can help with investing, but getting those elite engineers who want to make sure your startup is for real, that kind of signal that we provide them is pretty intense.
2: Before we finish with Alliance, what's your dream project or founder profile. I'm sure you have seen and graduated a lot of those great projects, but what is it that you look forward to a founding team coming to you with and telling you about?
1: So I've got two, all the on-chain game stuff. I'm really excited about. There are just so few people building them. So people who want to build on-chain game studios, I'm very excited by. I know this is a long-term relationship with like moonshot odds and 10-year return, but that's what I'm in it for. I'm also excited about companies that want to be a little bad. So I don't know if you remember Flashbots, but Flashbots was taking yep. MEV and productizing it. It's like there is a problem with blockchains and instead of ignoring it, we're going to assault it head on and reap the rewards and return those rewards to our users and investors. There's a lot of shit that we can do to blockchains to make them like way worse by attacking them. And just like out of goodwill, no one's bothering to ruin them. And I'd like someone to start making money ruining blockchains, just like crushing them. Those weaker ones, especially the zombie chains, like. I want to see zombie hunter companies. Oh,
2: oh wow. Well, awesome. So look, on the former, I guess, on-chain games, the 10-year horizon is, is probably okay. We all say we are very early in crypto. But I think on the latter, you might need to convince your legal team to accept those projects into the cohorts, no?
1: Yeah, probably. Well, <laughs> the in, in, accepting them isn't the problem. Investing might be. We're, <laughs> we're comfortable with investing in fully anonymous teams. And, you know, it's the rules as written. I would never invest in a team that would go like, you know, $5 wrench attack a CEO or something. I mean, just like you wrote bad code and we like fixed it for you. (laughs) Thank you for all this money.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, so. uh, What's the biggest innovation in gaming going to come from other than on-chain game?
1: Well, there's a lot of zero knowledge stuff to do. Zero knowledge is gonna unlock new primitives play with and also save a lot of space on chains so zk games intersection is a really important place to look for if you're thinking about a technology stack like where that's going to come from it's going to come from there
2: so you guys have established such a great brand i guess in in web 3 world but if everything goes to plan whatever time horizon you want to pick what do you guys want to make out of alliance is it running cohort 100? Is it $100 billion raised by your projects or 10s of unicorns? What's that goal?
1: Right. So right now, we're trying to make sure that more and more applicants apply to join every year, and that the best applicants apply. Right now, I'm confident that we can get the top 1.5% to 3% of founders to apply. But there's this top 1% that hates accelerators. The word has been tarnished. And they don't see the value that we'd love to give them. And so success for me would be redeeming the word accelerator to the point where that truly like best founder who's too good to even bother like talking to anybody else because they're so focused on building, and I know them and they are great, bothers to apply. That's That to me is a big success because I think that's where the most impactful companies are going to come from, some of them anyway. Once we get this incredible pipeline, we're going to get incredible people, and then the flywheel just goes forever. I want the DAO to eventually become self-sustaining, become its own living organism, live for 50 years, and just slowly include 100 more founders a year. At a certain rate, founders will start dying faster than we can let them in, and we'll reach equilibrium and have this sort of Illuminati of powerful, you know, foundational forces.
2: That girl post says a lot about your approach at Alliance. Hopefully you'll get there sooner than you think. But before I let you go, I have this closing question that I ask everyone. What are you most curious about these days and what are you doing to learn more about it?
1: I'm most curious right now about account abstraction. And I'm booking calls with people who know more about it than I do. I happen to now have the luxury of a great crypto network and can just tap the shoulders be like, hey, I noticed you're working on this. But for me, account abstraction is about several things. Your wallet becomes a smart contract, and so there's social recovery. That means that if I lose my private key, I can ask other people to change the administrator of the smart contract and let me spend again. That's really important for usability, but it's also important for things like the Solana phone, which is going to have an enclave, because you can't back up keys from an enclave. So if you can't back up keys, you need a way to rehabilitate a lost phone. And then When you have these kinds of technologies in place, they become really useful for games. You can build a persona on them. So Xbox keeps this idea of a player score, a gamer score across every game you play. Those games don't share databases, right? They share the substrate that is Xbox Live. If games are going to start using the blockchain as a substrate, we're going to want all their different burner wallets, because you shouldn't be playing games from like a wallet holding series assets, to be associated to each other in an overarching persona, a kind of mega wallet that inherits all the reputation built out from all the other games that have been played. So yeah, account abstraction and personas is what I'm currently digging into.
2: That's fascinating. Perhaps you should expect some people building towards that if your future cohorts satellites. Yeah, just DM me at DangerWillRobin. Absolutely. This has been such a fun conversation for me. I noted a lot of new concepts, which I will go ahead and start researching myself. I'm sure a lot of other people will want to do that. So Will, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.